0: Okay, everybody, we'll make this brief so we can get right into our topic. My the third topic in our three-part series, Jewish Identity Politics. So um, thank you for coming today. And uh, as I mentioned before, this is the uh, beginning of our 19th year of programs. You'll be getting some emails from me about uh, how to um, re-up and support CSP as we, go, uh, as we head to our 20th year and also a schedule um, for the next twelve months of programs, speakers, locations, and so on. They'll be coming out soon. The only programs I want to mention right now, it, again, is Shirel Horowitz. We have a three-part mini-series on art to make Rochelle happy. Israeli art is a window to Israeli history and collective memory. That's one topic. What is Israeli culture? And Adam B'anima, human and land, August 30th through 31st. So you'll be getting information about that. And um, you all know, well, some of you are new, but uh, Community, scholar, Community scholar Program um, has been in existence now for 18 years and uh, we are looking for a terrific 19th year and some uh, planning already for our 20th year. We are uh, taking a group to Poland in a month. We're going to Israel in October, 2020, and we are going to Italy in 2021. And I checked the Italy list. I added someone who wanted to be on there. We're at about 60 people who are interested in going to Italy. We have a space for 30. So when we have the program set, I will tell you in advance, I will not open registration at 12.01 a.m. like I did for Israel because I started getting calls from you people at 12.02 a.m. when you couldn't get through to the site to register. So I've learned no more 12.01 a.m. registrations. And um, also don't do it on a public holiday for the, uh, you know, the company that's doing the reservations. We, we, we opened at 12.01 a.m. on uh, Israel Independence Day with an Israeli tour company. So no one was around to answer the phone either. Um, okay, so we are recording today. Know that. Please turn off your cell phones. We have Deborah Dash Moore here. Anybody here that's new that hasn't heard any of the other two programs? This Is the first program for Deborah Dash Moore? No, you, you weren't here? I'm gonna tell you who our speaker is real quickly then. Just for you. Read the flyer. I'll do the I'll do the abbreviated. Deborah Dashmore is the Frederick C. L. Heatwell. It took me three times, professor, of history and and Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. She is a New Yorker by birth, a New Yorker by accent. You have not lost your accent. I'm sorry. I speak so she's got the New Yorker. It's fine, we can deal with it. Um, She has received many awards and many grants, including a, uh, I'm going to say as well, um, a Fulbright Fellowship for Senior Scholars at Hebrew University, a Skirbel Visiting Fellowship at Oxford Center for Hebrew and Jewish Studies, a Center for Judaic Studies Fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania, and a Pew Fellowship at Yale. She's also received grants from the National Endowment for Humanities and the Mellon Foundation and the Litauer Foundation. Please join me in welcoming back to Orange County for her last program. For now, Deborah Dashmore. Thank you.
1: So this afternoon's program um, will take us into the latter part of the 20th century and a little bit into today, Um, not directly since I'm a historian, but I think you'll find what we're talking about today um, to have resonance for what's still going on, even though I'm gonna take you back to the 1970s which, looking around, I recognize most of you can remember. Most of you can remember the 1970s, okay. So identity politics is a product of the 1970s. It explodes then um, and is awakened by student activists in the civil rights movement think 50s, 60s, the new left, think 1960s, all right? The politics of identity drew upon black power as well as feminism's insight that the personal is political and a response on the part of European ethnics um, to sometimes construed as a, a, a white backlash and other times not, sort of to evoke the new ethnicity. Um, women come in this, in these years to identify what Betty Friedan uh, called the problem that has no name, and they stirred others suffering from discrimination also to find their voice. And especially this will include gays and lesbians and and, uh, activism around um, sexuality. Um, they become, these women do, models for political action. Uh, for Jews as well as for other Americans. And uh, scholars usually point to a um, 1967 meeting that takes place in Chicago, uh, two months after uh, the Israeli victory, when um, the, it was a, a group called the Conference on New Politics met, and there was a resolution put forward by the Black Caucus in that uh, that was critical right, of um, the Israeli victory um, and supportive of the Palestinians, and at the same time, there w- were men who dismissed women. I mean, literally off the stage. Um, you know, go. <laughs> Shulamit Firestone was was one of them. You know, little girl. You know, we're not interested in your politics. Um, as uh, the beginnings of a real shift that is going to take place. Uh, that comes to fruition in the in the 1970s and I think I would say we're still living to a certain extent with identity politics. Um, So what did identity politics mean for American Jews? It meant trying to bring Jewishness together with the political elements of an identity. So, Jewish identity acquires a kind of self-conscious valence that had been lacking for an earlier generation. Certainly was lacking for the generation I spoke about last night. I I mean, for them, Jewishness was just sort of who you were. It, It wasn't politicized as an identity. But now, with politics extending into all reaches of culture, and society, including Jewish life, the question arises, so what does it mean to be an American Jew? Is this a religious question? Is this a question of ethnicity? Is this a political question? How do you answer that question? How do Jews understand themselves as individuals and as members of a group in the United States? So those who embrace this politics of identity initially turn away from the vision of integration that had animated the civil rights movement after World War II. So there's a rejection, in some ways, of that vision. This is a desire rather than to say, let's integrate everyone as an individual within society and not pay attention to group differences. It says, no, 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 we have to pay attention to group differences, right? This is in part the basis of affirmative action, but it's um, a a very different way of thinking about politics. Um, You think in these terms about ethnicity, race, gender, sexuality as sort of unchangeable elements of what makes you who you are. And as I mentioned, white descendants of European immigrants uh, pursued in the early 70s, a fairly aggressive form of um, uh, politics, also, which gets codified in 1972 in something called the Ethnic Heritage Studies Program Act. And those of you who've been in colleges and universities know about the rise of ethnic studies. and To a certain extent, Jewish studies took part in this as well. But it brought federal money to encourage the study of ethnicity in American society. And it really helped to solidify the politics of identity. Um, It is something also that gays and lesbians end up using as well. However, the debate over, ethnic, um, over identity politics becomes more complicated because in some ways it forces individuals to decide which identity matters, right? Um, most of us, we all recognize have layered identities. Hmm? So does your gender um, as a woman trump your ethnicity as a Jew? Does your homosexuality uh, take precedence over your racial identity? What happens when one aspect of your identity comes in conflict with another aspect of identity? Should you speak out about anti-Semitism in the women's movement? Should you defend Zionism right, from attack um, by civil rights advocates? These demands to choose a single identity really resonated with American Jews because so many of them had been playing key roles in the civil rights struggles, of the 50s and 60s, in the anti-war movement, in the feminist movement, as supporters of both black power and the new white ethnics. And really, not until the late 80s, when Kimberly Crenshaw comes up with this term, intersectionality, um, did recognition of the overlapping, intersecting uh, identities acquire some kind of legitimacy. Um, And yet, even then, and I would say even now, Jews continue to struggle to be seen as something other than white, in quotation marks. So, American Jews start in the 70s then to debate the musts and the shoulds of their various loyalties. Um, Were they Jewish Americans? Hmm? Analogous, we might say, to Italian Americans. Or were they American Jews? Analogous, we might say, to American Catholics or Protestants. Did ethnicity matter more than religion? And what was ethnicity without religion or without language or without memory? What was the meaning of American? Did it suggest only citizenship or membership in a nation? Did it imply participation in a culture grounded in English and connected to a history of settlement of this continent, um, could Jews as the children and grandchildren, um, and in some cases great-grandchildren of Yiddish-speaking immigrants, um, lay claim to this American history uh, of lang- and this language and uh, culture? What in fact did Jew mean? Perhaps it was an expression, just a family sentiment, a way of identifying parents and grandparents. And I will add that I have students now who, when asked, <laughs> are you Jewish? They say, uh, no, my parents are. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, so the issue of what identity one chooses is uh, uh, something that becomes really um, uh, problematic for Jews. Um, did Jewishness just refer to the public dimension of being Jewish, which is to say to a history of suffering and persecution, um, especially around the Holocaust? Maybe, you know, the term Jew had some connections to the Bible. Hmm? Okay. This, in other words, these questions, all these questions that I'm putting out here, were questions that American Jews asked themselves and led them to reconsider the struggles um, that had previously gone before, right? So there had been debates back in the period of World War I about identity. But they were very, very different. So the notion, for example, of cultural pluralism was an idea put forward by a Jewish philosopher named Horace Callan. The notion of the melting pot was an idea. Actually, it was a play um, created by a Jewish writer, Israel Zangwill. Um, so these are these are big concepts for to try to understand how to think about America, right? Cultural pluralism, melting pot, etc. But in the 70s, you get very different understandings. Um, And there is this real discussion over, if you're going to put the Jewish first, right? That's more important than the American, which is possible. Um, Did that mean that you were putting a religious identity or a national identity? An ethnic identity or a political identity? Um, And you get interesting stuff, these various debates. Um, Jews were accused of having their Uncle Jakes, who were analogous to Uncle Tom's. Right? What did Uncle Jakes do? Uncle Jakes were uh, always conciliatory to non-Jews, to Gentiles, uh, they didn't want to, to ruffle the waters. Right? They refused to defend Jewish interests aggressively. Right? But at times, the arguments threatened to drive Jews out of the community, some Jews. Right. Um, and that, I think, has important reverberations. So American Jews encountered these debates at a moment when they had achieved unprecedented security, affluence, integration, and freedom in the U.S. As the only large community that was unscarred by the Holocaust, Um, Jews entered the post-war world ready to accept responsibilities of leadership. They tackled twin challenges of uh, uh, assisting the thousands of survivors who were in DP camps and helping to establish a a Jewish state uh, after World War II. And doing this in the context of a changing social, economic, and political scene in the US so while I spoke about New York yesterday, I didn't particularly talk about all the people who leave the big cities, right, And which is why you're all sitting here <laughs> um, because they, they left New York, they left Chicago, they left Philadelphia, and they moved to places like LA and then from LA eventually you know, to, to Orange County. They also moved to places in the South like Miami and then later to Atlanta. So there, there's a, a change in the demography of, of American Jews. Um, as I did mention last night, um, they use the GI Bill, um, and some use mortgages uh, to uh, um, establish themselves. They invest heavily in the 50s and 60s in building synagogues and Jewish community centers in trying to nourish new forms of Jewish life and identity in their kids. The, their kids are the baby boom generation, right? This is who we're talking about. Um, they. Created a, an extensive array of Jewish communal uh, organizations involving social welfare, recreation, health, education, etc. And looking at this world of the mid 60s, um, Harold Weisberg observed with a mixture of awe and disdain that, and I quote Jewish life in the United States is expressed primarily through a culture of organizations. So belonging to a Jewish community took precedence over belief in Judaism among American Jews. Jewish accommodation to American congregational models of affiliation effectively papered over the fact that faith had not been the bedrock of Judaism. And since Jews didn't want their children growing up to feel insecure or inadequate, they tackled these enduring barriers of antisemitism. which I mentioned briefly last night, discrimination in jobs, housing, public accommodations, et cetera. If the New York beauty queen, Bess Meyerson, could be chosen Miss America in 1945, right? Then Jews could be accepted as Americans without denying their Jewish identity. Or at least that's what the parental generation hoped. There had been, of course, political arguments among Jews, right? Um, especially before World War II. But after the war, you get a kind of consensus, and that consensus locates Jews primarily in the urban wing of the Democratic Party, which means you have Jews who support the New Deal social welfare provisions, social security, unemployment insurance. Jews support the rights of labor to unionize, um, to negotiate. Uh, with strength for a decent livelihood. They have a very generous understanding of the public sphere, um, that there should be public support for housing, for utilities, transportation, education, libraries. All of these are things that Jews support the public doing. Now, their optimism is tempered, of course, um, by their experience in World War II, and the mass murder of European Jews. This means that Jews support the reality of a Jewish state, of Israel, um, and at the same time are also supporters of new states in Africa and in Asia. Right? They are part of an anti-colonialist move. They are supporters of the United Nations Right? Um, as a way of... Uh, governing the world to avoid future wars. Um, They're supporters mostly at home of civil rights, um, fair employment practices, uh, and trying to make the United States a more uh, equal society. I mentioned last night about the Judeo-Christian tradition. Jews are supportive of that. They come to accept it but they also come to press for changes so that you have legal challenges, trying to get rid of Bible reading in the public schools, trying to get rid of Christmas and Easter celebrations in the public schools, right? This is part of their understanding of the Judeo-Christian tradition, right? There are some Jews who are pushed out of the Jewish community, mostly those who identified as communists in the um, 40s uh, and and early 50s. The anti-communist hysteria uh, that uh, takes hold after World War II also happens within the Jewish community, and these groups are pushed out. However, there is, relatively speaking, um, a measure of consensus among American Jews politically. The maturation of the baby boomers coincides with the rise of identity politics. And by the 1970s, baby boomers were recasting Judaism as part of a generational rebellion against the synthesis that their parents had crafted. Um, It wasn't their only motivation, but it was part of it. Jewish baby boomers also believed that social transformation was possible, right? And that if you did a shared Jewish activity, that this was an important act of protest, right? this kind of public Jewishness. So they were making Jewish politics personal in a way that hadn't been true earlier. Right? Um, as one activist said, they were transforming from Jewish radicals to radical Jews. Okay. So, there are a series of issues that come to the forefront. One, the Holocaust and its meanings. Two, Israel and identification with political Zionism. Three, feminism as women's liberation. Four, intermarriage and the betrayal of Jewish continuity. Five, the fate of Soviet Jewry um, and how it should be rescued. Six, the authority of Judaism and a religious identity, and seven, Yiddish culture and homosexuality as an alternative cultural form of identity. So I'm going to try to discuss a bunch of these, given the time. I'm not going to be able to get into everything, but you know, um, we can discuss a bit with the questions and answers. Um, so, what these baby boomers do? Um, is they emphasize the culpability of three institutions in the assimilation of American Jews. These three institutions were Jewish communal federations, huge impersonal synagogues, middle-class materialistic suburban Jewish families. Okay. All right. Young Jews disaffected from established Jewish communal organizations and bitterly opposed to their priorities and leadership, mounted attacks that drew upon a kind of intriguing mixture, support for Zionism, concern for the Holocaust, belief in feminism, advocacy of public religious behavior. Um, They don't exactly pull this into a coherent program, but they use these issues as kinds of clubs to attack what they label the establishment. So it's not unusual in these years to see college-aged Jews demanding greater religious observance from Jewish organizations, right? That, that, uh, one of the protests that they do in L.A. is to go around and hammer mezuzahs on the doors of the federation, all the interior doors, right? 200 kids get involved in doing this. That's a protest, right? There. Um, and uh, so they—they they have that kind of public Jewishness they want, the importance of Jewish difference, and at the same time they're attacking the establishment for failing to rescue Jews during the Holocaust. Right? There's not a particular logic in, in the package, all right? Um, but there are threads that link these um, as a kind of confluence of political, social, and cultural trends. So. What we have then, in terms of this identity politics of the baby boom generation, it's partly a generational revolt. It's partly an effort to learn from history. It's partly the power of the counterculture, which was strong, and it's partly a response to traumatic events that are happening in the late 60s um, in American cities. So you get political assassinations, right? Um, not just Kennedy earlier, but Martin Luther King, right? Robert F. Kennedy, uh, okay, Uh, Malcolm X. Um, Student takeovers of universities, anti-war protests that end in death, right? The the four kids who were killed at Kent State, three of them are Jewish. Um, Riots by African Americans and strikes that pit Jewish union members against black advocates of community control, and that is something that specifically happens in New York. So just to give you a point of comparison, the historian Ezra Mendelson had outlined a topology of Jewish politics in the modern era before the heyday of identity politics. And so he said from the 1880s to World War II, people asked not who is a Jew, but what is a Jew? Were Jews a nation, a people, a religious group, or just a group of individuals where Jewishness was a private matter. With the rise of identity politics, the question turns less on what is a Jew than who is a Jew. The possibility now arises that a Jew could lose her Jewish identity if she adopts the wrong politics, okay? Can a Jew identify with black liberation? Or does that mean that the person has betrayed her Jewishness? Can a Jew be a feminist? Can a feminist be a Jew? Are there contradictory are these contradictory identities or complementary ones? Is a Jew a supporter of israel 's right to exist? Are Jews necessarily supporters of israel 's right to exist? Does a Jew retain her Jewish rights within the community if she intermarries so It gets far more complicated. No longer could one claim an identity as a Jew and then adopt whatever politics you wanted to. The issue was no longer what is to be done, but rather where do I stand? Politics and identity were intertwined. The former helped to define the latter as much as the latter shaped the former. So, Jewish identity ambiguously located among changing American interpretations of ethnicity, religion, peoplehood, race, lent itself to political definition. For many Jews what mattered was politics and politics therefore defined their Jewish identity. And these politics centered on hot issues. What were the hot issues? Feminism, Israel, Holocaust, intermarriage and religion. Uh, the activism of identity politics ends up fracturing the Jewish community. Um, the one thing that tends to unite Jews at this point in time is fights against anti Semitism, but anti Semitism is less um, uh, relevant as an issue in the 70s and 80s um, when identity politics um, is flourishing. All right. So, give, give you a couple of specific examples now. Perhaps most divisive was the issue of Israel in the 70s. After the 67 war, a number of American Jewish activists organized something called Brera, which means alternative, a project of concern in diaspora-Israel relations. Its name betokened, and this is a quote, betokened our desire for an alternative to the intransigence of both the PLO and the several governments of Israel explained Chicago Rabbi Arnold Jacob Wolf. They argued uh, for peaceful coexistence of Israelis and Palestinians through a two-state solution. Although these ideas would later form the basis of the Oslo Accords 20 years later, in the mid-70s they were considered provocative and inappropriate, threatening to undermine American support for Israel. Birra articulated a dissenting position among American Jews, it was a minority position. It says, recognize Palestinians as a nation. Brera maintained that American Jews could simultaneously support and criticize Israel, both at the same time. Loyalty to and identification as Jews did not require accepting decisions of Israeli political figures. Indeed, the organization's very name challenged the phrase that was popular in Israel at the time, Ein Brera, meaning you know, there is no choice, no alternative, but to accept the status quo. But in 1977, a group of conservative American Jews orchestrated a very deft attack on Brera that smeared the organization writers associated with uh, Americans for a Safe Israel, which was a group that had been founded in uh, 1971, to persuade American Jews, this is a quote, to reject a peace for territory solution and only accept a peace for peace solution, tarred Brera's leaders and members as self-hating Jews, anti-Zionists with communists and socialist pasts, traitors to the Jewish community, or, unwitting fellow travelers. With Brera's demise, conflict over Israel among American Jews diminished. Neither New Jewish Agenda or Americans for Peace Now or New Israel Fund, which all emerged in the 1980s, mounted the sort of linked critiques of the American Jewish establishment and Israel's political leaders that had characterized Brera. More recently, I would say that we have seen in the establishment of J Street a kind of alternative right, to dominant American politics around Israel. Yet, in some ways, um, the establishment of J Street also recalls Brera. For example, there are many synagogues um, and Jewish community centers around the US that choose not to invite uh, the leaders of J Street to speak. Um, other American Jews question the loyalty of J Street to Israel and to the American Jewish community. The conference of presidents of major American uh, Jewish organizations you know, refused to admit J Street to membership. Um, although J Street has not been silenced the way Breirah was, um, it walks a very fine line. And most Israeli officials in the US largely shun it. Okay. Okay. So at the moment, um, debates circulate over whether litmus tests of loyalty to Israel exist within the American Jewish organized community. Some argue that political support for any Israeli policy with security implications demarcates a useful boundary, separating those Jews who are committed to Israel's existence as a Jewish state from all who seek Israel's downfall. Still others contend that American Jews should uh, preserve their right to criticize Israeli policies. Still others uh, claim the legitimacy of their efforts as Jews to support boycotts and divestment campaigns directed against companies doing business with Israel or the West Bank. Um, In addition, sort of on the other side of things, there's uh, controversy over charges that there is an Israel lobby in the U.S. and that it exerts excessive um, and unprecedented pressure on the foreign policy of the U.S. So that's the Israel conflict as understood in the framework of identity politics. As conflict over Israel became less intense in the 80s and 90s, there was a shift in identity politics and a focus instead, especially in the the 80s, um, on the Holocaust and its meanings. Connections were drawn between the Holocaust and the subsequent establishment of the state of Israel. Um, and that contributed to the meanings of the Holocaust. Increasingly, Americans of all backgrounds uh, recognized the significance of the genocide of European Jews, and that's one of the reasons why you get the establishment of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. And yet, the establishment of that museum also provoked all these debates over the uniqueness of the Holocaust. At stake was ultimately how one viewed the war and the events leading up to the war and what happened after it ended. Was this a singular Jewish catastrophe with its roots in antisemitism, the culmination of centuries of religious persecution of Jews? Or was the extermination of European Jews one example of genocide in a century filled with mass murders? Many Americans, of course, tried to say both. Um, And as the Holocaust becomes um, something that you can watch on television, I don't know, how many of you ever saw that nine-part series Holocaust with the ads for gas in in, in between? I remember watching that. Um, There's also debates over how you should represent it. right? Debates over that series, the mini-series Holocaust, which actually really secures, helps to secure the word Holocaust as the term um, for the murder of European Jews. Um, Debates over Schindler's List. I mean, every time you have a very popular and successful um, uh, presentation of the Holocaust, there are debates about whether it's appropriate on the grounds of taste or seriousness. But... In the context of identity politics, it was no longer enough to remember the murder of European Jews, to see antisemitism as a form of racism, to resolve to dismantle discrimination in the US, to support the rights of Jews to have a, a state. Right? These were the old ideas. Right? Such ideas, right, which characterized the greatest generation that fought World War II, lacked clarity and commitment in the eyes of their kids. The Holocaust increasingly came to occupy a central place in the identity politics of American Jews. What one thought of the Holocaust, what lessons one derived from it, how one commemorated it mattered a great deal. Uh, As an example, when her daughter came home from first grade, first grade, and asked, where were you in the Holocaust, mommy? (laughs) The feminist scholar Paula Hyman (laughs) who was born after the war, right, was moved to write an article in the New York Times magazine where she questioned the emphasis on role-playing that was popular in Jewish religious schools at the time, Holocaust scenarios at Jewish summer camps, and the centrality that the Holocaust had achieved um, in Jewish school um, Curriculums. She asked really whether Holocaust consciousness should stand at the emotional heart of Jewish study. So the Holocaust ceases as it becomes this emotional heart of Jewish study to be a touchstone for liberal politics. It could not be summoned to, do ju- to justify building a synagogue or integrating a bus station or restaurants, or fighting poverty, which was how it was used in the 50s. That's how it was used in the 50s. In 1967, Arthur Morse, who was an executive television producer of CBS Reports, published a best-selling book called While Six Million Died, and it was subtitled A Chronicle of American Apathy. I don't know if anybody read it. Okay, a couple of you did. As its cover proclaimed, Morse told, and I quote, the breathtaking story of how America ducked chance after chance to save the Jews. The book marked an opening salvo in what would become a mounting attack on the Roosevelt administration for failing to rescue European Jews. One that actually ran parallel to an effort by historians to sort of knock FDR off of a pedestal. Certainly a pedestal where American Jews and other liberals had placed him. Now, in those years, baby boomer Jews adopted Morse's critique, but they aimed it not at FDR, but rather at the leadership of American Jews. Along with blaming American Jews for failing to rescue their European cousins, these young Jews also condemned American Jews for not remembering the Holocaust, for not placing it at the forefront of their consciousness. The charges stuck. Indeed, a blue ribbon commission headed by former Supreme Court Justice Arthur Goldberg was impaneled in the 1980s to evaluate and judge American Jews held up to the standard of identity politics, American Jews of the war years failed miserably. A mark of their lack of interest, it seemed, they didn't even care to mourn the deaths, to commemorate the cultural destruction, to ponder the meaning of the Holocaust, Subsequently, historian Chassidina, whom I know some of you, you know, have met, has showed that this powerful version of history is wrong, that American Jews did remember, they did mourn, they did commemorate, they also did protest, they did, right? I mean, they did all the things that they were accused of not doing um, in the 1980s. The Holocaust remained burned in their consciousness, but the politics of identity erased it from history. The children did not realize what the parents had done. As another generation of children matured, they often disagreed with their parents' practices, either adopting more rigorous religious observance or intermarrying, the two sort of extremes. Both actions challenged their parents' religious identities and politics. Young Jews who returned It was called to Orthodox or Hasidic Judaism, often refused to eat in their parents' kitchens because the kitchens weren't kosher enough for them. Uh, They enacted their religious behaviors in public for all to see. They emphasized the importance of strict interpretations of religious requirements. At the other end of the spectrum, young Jews who intermarried often denied that they were still Jews, thus disrupting the chain of generations that had been so central to their parents' identities. So both of these going on at the same time, especially in the late 70s and 80s. With the rise of identity politics, you also get increasing demands on both Orthodox and conservative Judaism. Feminist Jews specifically urged the latter, that is to say conservative Judaism, to move beyond mixed seating that had previously been a symbol of equality between men and women in Judaism. Now feminists called for recognition as constituent members of a prayer quorum, a minion, acceptance of women as prayer leaders, training of women as rabbis, scholars, cantors. And their demands were met, which is fascinating. What it did was to align conservative Judaism with an egalitarianism identified as American. By contrast, efforts to convince Orthodox rabbis to modify halakha, Jewish law, to allow women to study traditional texts, to permit them to form their own prayer groups, engendered as much opposition as it did support. Women had a place in Judaism, Orthodox leaders affirmed, but it was not identical to that of men. Um, We see the politics of religious identity extending into the public sphere beyond the synagogue in terms of clothing styles, right? Um, As a way of marking a religious identity, Orthodox women increasingly adopted modest forms of dress, wearing long skirts, blouses, covering their hair if they were married, different kinds of head coverings for men, from knitted kippo to elaborate fur-trimmed hats, signified various allegiances to Orthodoxy. Mayor Kahana, who uh, organized the Jewish Defense League in New York in the late 60s, encouraged his male supporters to wear large white kippot, um, especially when they went out to defend Jews uh, in New York City as a sign of their aggressive Jewish masculinity, which is a, a politicized understanding of what the kippah would come to mean. So other kinds of public behaviors, where one ate, the, all of this entered the language of religious identity politics. And this led to the drawing of fairly sharp lines um, within a a religious world that had been far more um, fluid and accepting of variety uh, up up until the 1970s. Um, So I'm I'm sure you're all sort of familiar with the, the lines that exist these days, even within Orthodox Judaism. Um, but they have their, their roots in this time period. So, now to look briefly at feminism. Um, Jewish feminists distinguished themselves from many of the Jewish women active in the feminist movement by refusing to privilege one identity over another or to separate their identity as women from their identity as Jews. Right? They said they're, they're interlinked. Neither took priority. And so, therefore, Jewish feminists had to have a dual struggle against sexism and discrimination in the Jewish community and against anti-Semitism in the feminist community. They were engaged in both. They were pretty successful in the former, um, although I think we can see in this past year as the Me Too movement has revealed, there are a lot of patriarchal practices um, that still need to be changed within the Jewish community. However, certainly by the early 90s, less than two decades, women had broken down long-standing barriers to participation as equals in Jewish religious life and won recognition as rabbis, scholars, and leaders. Their successes helped to establish feminism as an enduring fault line separating Jewish religious groups. Simultaneously, Jewish women summoned the courage to speak out about anti-Semitism in diverse segments of the women's movement. The attacks on anti-Zionism, anti-Judaism, stereotypes of Jewish women, the Jewish American princess stereotype which feminists attack, the Jap, right? All this promoted some healthy uh, dialogue. Uh, So Jewish feminism also offered to feminist Jews an alternative path um, because they spoke a common language with Jews on the left uh, and also modeled a kind of constructive engagement um, and critique. So they, they were situated, these Jewish feminists, between competing constituencies and claiming legitimacy in both. Um, for example, um, Betty Friedan, who of course is an important feminist leader, uh, Jewish background, really was not interested um, in, in her Jewish identity, but eventually rediscovers it because of the path that has been um, forged by uh, Jewish feminists. So there were a series of, of conferences, one in 75 in Mexico City, then another one in, in uh, 81 in Copenhagen, and, and so these are international women's conferences. And Jewish feminists who, who went there encountered attacks on Israel. Um, they valued female solidarity and they wanted to help shape a woman's movement, but their experience, especially at Copenhagen, seemed to require them to choose between their loyalty to feminism or their loyalty to Israel. Um, they had faced down men who called them uh, self-hating Jews uh, and who had been Dismissive of feminist criticism of patriarchal religious structures, um, had rejected demands for equality. Um, And now, you know, in this feminist movement, international feminist movement, they discovered that as Jews, they also had to uh, respond. Um, So Letty uh, Cotton Pogerman, who was one of the founders of Ms. Magazine um, and an activist, After Copenhagen spent 18 months interviewing around 80 women to understand the outbursts of prejudice she had heard in in Copenhagen, and she was struggling to explain how Jewish and feminist loyalties could be reconciled. She argued that the anti-Zionism of the International Women's Movement threatened feminism. She also argued that it was anti-Semitic. In a long article, she charged that Christian women scapegoated Jews and blamed them for the ills of patriarchy. She also documented how silencing Jewish women abrogated core feminist principles, because Jewish women talk too much, and they were told. And she articulated why Jewish women should not be forced to choose between their feminist and Jewish commitments. Will feminism be our movement only so long as we agree not to make Jewishness an issue, she asked. Must we identify as Jews within feminism with as much discomfort as we identify as feminists within Judaism? It was an article that that was very influential. It led to an outpouring um, of letters. And she clearly touched a, a sensitive nerve in the early 80s here. American Jews who wanted to uphold plural commitments, struggled in the face of criticism. That's, that's what this identity politics did. Feminism promoted changes uh, in the position of women within Judaism, um, and that didn't mean that they were self-hating Jews. They supported Israel, but they wanted it to improve the status of all Israeli women. You don't get a really an Israeli feminist movement until the mid-80s. Um, they cherished an international feminist movement, but desired that it disavow anti-Zionism. They considered themselves loyal Americans, even as they demanded progress in women's equality in the US. Feminists resisted these either or demands that were characteristic of identity politics, but they were attacked by critics from the left and the right um, who were working on fashioning what we might call litmus tests of loyalty. Probably the most enduring arena of identity politics can be found in bitter debates over intermarriage. Um, It just engendered hyperbolic rhetoric. Uh, The Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, referred to rising intermarriage rates among American Jews as a silent holocaust. Um, Fears for the future of Jewish life in the US have focused, in fact, on intermarriage. Every time you have a new survey that gives statistics on it, it leads to frantic efforts to revamp American Jewish organizational priorities. Um, Here, calls are heard to exclude Jews who intermarried from positions of authority, uh, to keep them out of synagogue boardrooms and classrooms. Indeed, intermarriage vied with homosexuality as touchstones of identity politics at the end of the 20th century. When Israel uh, embraced the Oslo Peace uh, Accord in, in the 90s under Rabin, Jewish conservatives shifted gears, dropped their focus on Israel, and initiated a new campaign against liberal Jews. A so-called continuity crusade attacked Jews who intermarried or supported intermarriage or wanted to welcome intermarried Jews into the Jewish community. Intermarriage revealed, it was argued, weakening loyalties of American Jews to Jewish peoplehood. In a provocatively titled article from the mid-90s, How to Save American Jews, that was published in Commentary Magazine, um, some of these figures propose that the organized Jewish community would do better to redirect its attention, its funding, and its programming from the periphery to the core. Jewish particularism should be emphasized and fostered. Judaism was a religion of obligations, laws, and norms. It needed to become the centerpiece of American Jewish life. All right, I'm, I'm running out of time, right, but couple more minutes here. So intermarriage also led to um, a promulgation of a statement on the Jewish future, which uh, a lot of prominent American Jews signed. That statement condemned community priorities and forms of outreach that would sacrifice distinctive, in quotes, Judaic values. The leaders who signed this statement decided to fight intermarriage to win followers and funds, And in the process, they questioned the viability of a liberal Jewish synthesis that welcomed equality and pluralism in American society. So, which side are you on? Hmm? Are you against Israeli policies and in favor of Palestinians? Are you opposed to APEC and in support of J Street? Is it legitimate to criticize Israel and yet still claim membership in the American Jewish community? Do you think American Jews must be sure to put their American loyalties ahead of their Jewish ones? Do you think that American Jews should put their Jewish loyalties ahead of their American ones? Since, after all, the United States is just a diaspora, and all Jewish diasporas must eventually succumb to anti-Semitism. Faced with such black and white views, it's worth asking, what has happened to plural loyalties and plural identities? As an older generation of baby boomers, including women who led the Jewish feminist movement gradually steps aside, priorities change. Several of the signers of the statement on the Jewish future now find the future in their hands. They direct it as chancellors of the Jewish Theological Seminary and the Hebrew Union College Institute of Jewish Jewish Institute of Religion. But they face young men and women with different ideas and goals. Jewish-American identity politics endures. Okay. We
2: have time for a few quick questions. It's not really a question, but it's just you hit on something so interesting that uh, you said there was a period in the 1940s and 50s where certain Jews were forced out of the Jewish world because of their allegiance to the communist world. A few years ago, I was in Stamford, Connecticut, and I went to visit my, my wife's parents' cemetery. And someone said to me, you know, there's another cemetery over there. I said, really, what's that? They said, well, go and take a look. I think you might be interested. Well, I went over there. It was a cemetery of all the Jewish communists in that area in the 1930s and 40s, and some of them had the hammer and sickle on their matzeva, their uh, gravestone uh, and their Jewish names, of course, some were written in Hebrew, some were written in Yiddish, but they were forced, and this is right next wow. to the Jewish cemetery. You know, it was their own pushed out.
1: That's fascinating. <laughs> okay. It? Yeah, anyway. yeah. Anyway
2: enjoyed your talk. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you for that. I did not know that uh, that this occurred even in death, so that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What is causing us to suffer the dichotomy of everything into it's either this or that and nothing in between? Can you
2: explain (laughs) that?
1: Um, So I think that as Jews um, in the U.S., we are very much influenced by American politics. Right? And when American politics is polarized, um, when it becomes a matter of either or, um, which is currently its state, Jews fall into the same, the same um, mode. Uh, I, I don't think it's particularly a, a Jewish thing, so to speak. I think it's, it's much more widespread. Um, the, the specific rise of identity politics, I do think, is, was largely a generational revolt um, on the part of baby boomers against their parents, but in that matter, the, the baby boomers were doing what was lots of other um, American young people were doing at the time. Um, uh, revolting uh, against the values uh, of their parents and trying to, you know, come up with uh, an alternative to what they uh, didn't like about their parental generation. So uh, I th- I think that it's the larger society that is shaping um, our our politics, and we now have, you know, we still have the majority of American Jews. Located on a kind of liberal wing uh, of American politics, the content of that liberalism has changed a lot. Right, it's, it's no longer about civil rights and, and you know um, the Judeo-Christian tradition, I and mean, it, it's much more about I don't know, abortion and, uh, and other kinds of of matters. But the the way in which specifically Jewish issues are turned into either-or choices is something that um, is is influenced by the polarization of our politics today. As such an innovative and bright, educated group, how do we change that? (laughs) Well, um, as as an innovative and educated group, how do we change it? I think we change it in part uh, of course, by voting, right? um, by engaging in um, political uh, action, uh, by reaching out to young people. Right? Uh, last uh, fall in in 2018, there was a, a really interesting campaign that um, uh, Hillel ran called "Meets Vote," V-O-T-E. Which was designed to create for 18 year olds a sort of ceremony, right? And to get at the significance of coming of age and voting. And they, they organized, you know, registration and, and, and then parties afterwards, right? You are, you're meets vote. You can now, you know, vote. Um, I think that that's one thing that American Jews can do, um, just internally among, among other Jews. Uh. In reference to the Holocaust that you talked about, I'm old enough to remember the 30s, and uh, the newspapers did not mention that much about what was going on over in Europe uh, and the the Holocaust. And uh, our State Department was very anti-Semitic, and President Roosevelt was was a great politician, and he had to appease everybody. And the rabbis did go to him and tell him what was going on in Europe, and he did nothing. So I just wanna, so the, and most people didn't know very much, unless they had relatives in Europe, they didn't know much about what was going on then. I, I certainly didn't as a child. So I, I mentioned last night how the notion of people not knowing became very widespread, even to the extent that this one flyer who actually bombed a town didn't remember that he knew right, what was going on. I think that the, um, the revision of history that goes on with this identity politics, is, uh, it continues to be very powerful. Um, in terms of convincing people that they didn't really know what was happening. Um, All the things that you mentioned are true. Um, What uh, FDR and others would have said is, the best way to save the Jews of Europe is to win the war. That was the answer. And what you didn't mention was the fact that Jews feared Uh, American Jews feared that they would be blamed for bringing America into the war. In September of 41, before Pearl Harbor, Charles Lindbergh gets up at an America First rally And what does he say at the America First Valley? He says there are three groups trying to to push us into war, right? And uh, the British is, of course, one, and the Jewish is another one of the groups. So Jews were aware that, yes, they were really supportive. They were supportive of Lend-Lease. They were supportive of... uh, the, the 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 four principles that um, FDR articulated in in January of forty one of, of the kind of vision of a world that one wanted, but they were aware that there were a lot of Americans who uh, thought that that you know they didn't want to go to war to save the Jews, mm-hmm. um, and you have to put that into the into the mix of understanding, yes, you're right, FDR was a canny politician and FDR did not feel until 1944 um, that it was worthwhile trying to do anything special for Jews and then he didn't even label it as special, right? The, the uh, refugee committee that he, that he sets up, right? And, and all the uh, survivors who were brought to um, Oswego in a camp in uh, upstate New York. So it's a very complicated uh, account, and what is uh, clear looking back on the 70s and 80s um, is the extent to which uh, American Jews argued um, and attacked their their former leadership, right, um, for, for not doing enough to save American Jews on the assumption, of course, that they could have saved them, which is um, an interesting uh, assumption.
2: Um, at a recent conference uh, I went to uh, of non-Jews, a couple of thousand non-Jews, it became clear that there's a resurgence of literature of American fiction by... Um, Non Jews about the Holocaust and for non Jews, often with non Jewish um, heroes in it. How does that fit into American identity politics in 2019? Oh gosh. Um, all right,
1: that, that, that's really complicated. I mean, uh, you know, when, when Spielberg did Schindler's List, right, he was attacked for saying, you know, Why'd you pick, you know, the one Nazi who who uh, didn't persecute Jews, right? To make as the hero of the movie uh, 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 about uh, uh, the persecution and murder of millions of Jews. Um, I, I'm unfamiliar with this uh, literature, so I can't really um, address it. But I would suspect that... Um, it's an effort on the part of non-Jews to, to write themselves, as it were, into this history, which is recognized as a very important history. Um, in, in, right now, um, probably because for most young people these days, the 20th century is a closed book. Right? It could be 500 years ago. Right? They don't know World War II they don 't know right it 's a closed book it 's old it 's really old um, they don 't even remember, of course, because they 're too young, nine eleven right so you 're dealing with people whose consciousness begins i don 't know you know around uh, two thousand and nine <laughs> um, and and don 't and don't recognize um, the, the history of, of what has gone gone before. Um, but I can't really answer that question as to why now. So I have a self-serving question. As a historian, what you've conveyed to us is a sweep of change and complexity. So my question asks you to stretch beyond looking back as a historian and looking forward. If you were the rabbi of a community, giving the High Holiday Sermon this year. What would you say
2: in regard to looking forward?
1: You know, I think there's a reason I became a historian and not a rabbi. Although I couldn't have become a rabbi when I became a historian, so that was moot. What would I say looking forward? I think that I would say that it's really important to recognize um, who our allies are in the United States. I think that uh, we ha- have forgotten that we have a lot of allies who are, are among people who suffer um, and that their concerns um, are should be our concerns also because uh, by by helping those who um, are faced with uh, greater threats than we are, we actually are doing the best we can to secure our future as well, and that a kind of narrowing of focus on and defining of, sort of what's good for the Jews, as it were, uh, is not. A, a means of moving forward um, uh, to make for a, a better US. And I guess that comes back to what your question was also. How do we do that, right? We, we need to think of, of who our allies are. And I think we've lost sight of, uh, of some of the people who would be very important, valuable allies uh, moving forward. Um,
0: Thank you very much. And uh, by the time you leave and get on your plane home, the sun will be out, I promise you. So you can tell people there is sun in Orange County. We'll send you a photo.